This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week, we're talking about winning in pediatric value-based care. We are honored to have Executive Director of the Seattle Children's Care Network, Ginger Hines, and the Medical Director for Seattle Children's Care Network, as well as the Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at University of Washington School of Medicine, Dr. Cheryl Morelli. They are joining us today to talk about pediatric value-based care and their success in building a clinically integrated network in Seattle. You know, Eric, these guys really are inspirational, fantastic leaders in value and just have so much depth of information to share. This is a power-packed episode. And I have to say, I was thinking of my kids the whole time. So anybody out there, if you have kids or you have nieces and nephews, you know, be thoughtful. You're not going to be able to help but think about them and, and what we can be doing as healthcare system and industry and, and as a society to improve population health for pediatrics. Well, this is our first episode on pediatric value-based care, and we couldn't have started with a better group than Ginger and Cheryl. So let's go ahead and hand it over to, to them as they talk about their race to value. Ginger Hines, Dr. Cheryl Morelli, thank you so much for joining us today in this week's Race to Value. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, thank you. Agree. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, so excited to have this conversation and talk about Seattle Children's Care Network. And I thought a great place to start would be to talk about your, your history and your journey in value-based care. For our listeners out there, just a, a little bit of background of Seattle Children's Care Network, or SCCN. They're a pediatric, clinically integrated network with a shared commitment to advance quality, reduce cost, and improve patient experience across the care continuum. So Cheryl and Ginger, you have a clinically integrated network with, as I understand, the network's made up of Seattle Children's Hospital, which is your premier hospital partner. You have 600 specialists that are in the Children's University Medical Group. You have 20 primary care pediatric practices that are comprising more than 200 providers. I mean, you have six specialty clinics. 
And member practices in the CIN support 50,000 pediatric lives and value-based care contracts. So I thought a great place to start would just be for you to walk through your history and from when you were founded in 2014 to where you are today. And with an exclusive focus on children's health, how are you able to build the level of collegiality and collaboration in the network to improve outcomes? And what types of innovative partnerships have you formed with health plan partners over these last few years to really advance the health of children in your community? Well, I can start. This is Ginger, and then I'll turn it over to Cheryl to comment as well. Uh, but SCCN started back in 2014. And for folks who are uh, familiar with the Puget Sound market, the value-based turning point really was driven by the employer side. So a large direct-to-employer contract here in this market really launched a lot of the work, and it definitely did for Seattle Children's. And so in 2014, the network was created to participate in that first direct-to-employer arrangement. You know, we don't have Medicare on the pediatric side, so we didn't have MSSP or Medicare Advantage driving us. So for us, it was a little bit different journey. But the next year then, 2015, the next direct-to-employer contract came along as another large employer group started to, to turn to value. So that's what's really launched us. When you consider the LAN APM framework, you know, we have arrangements everywhere from on the left side of that framework on pay for reporting and pay for performance up through shared savings arrangements and also some shared risk arrangements. In our market, we see that it is moving more to shared risk, and we're expecting that, especially on the Medicaid side. Our state healthcare authority is starting to move, and they have, they've put a real stake in the ground about the percentage of their members and enrollees that they would like in a value-based arrangement using that APM framework. So that's also driven our market considerably. The foundation of working together with our practices really, I believe, is all about the relationship and the trust with the practices that they trust us, that we have a shared vision, that we're going to provide them benefit for their patients, their practice. And so Ginger and I understood that the relationships are really the foundation to that. So we started having very regular joint operating committee meetings with the practices where we would go out quarterly to meet in person with the practices about what we're up to, what are they up to, where where do we have common ground, Where what can we work on together, what are their pain points. And the first time we went out, that really was a clinic administrator and maybe a lead physician. But very quickly for almost all of the practices over the next two, maybe three, we ended up having all of the physicians in the practice join us for those meetings because they were hearing from their lead physician and their clinic manager little bits and pieces, but they were very honest with their colleagues that, hey, you know, we can't explain this really well to you. You need to hear it really from the horse's mouth. And that really, I think, catapulted us um, into be able to have then effective and trusting relationships to work with these practices, which really is the key to us being successful together. They have to trust us and they have to trust the data and the information we're sharing with them to be able to then consider, um, well, what can we do together and improve together? Ginger, Dr. Morelli, I'd like to engage you both further on this concept of pediatric value-based care and how it can be better positioned in the overall health value landscape. Unfortunately, many standalone pediatric hospitals still might be uncertain about the concept of value-based reimbursement in their domain. 
Since they're primarily focused on high-end specialty care, many pediatric hospital leaders might believe the value-based payment models are not beneficial or not applicable or maybe possibly a fad. Additionally, some payer executives may believe there's little scope for care and cost optimization for kids since pediatric care mainly caters to relatively healthier sections of patient populations. Overall, pediatrics only accounts for 10 to 15% of a commercial payer's total spend, which further diminishes the prospects for advancing pediatric-specific value-based payment models. For our listeners, can you provide them with the reality of the pediatric value-based care environment? How is value an important aim in pediatrics, and how should the industry be recognizing the opportunities to demonstrate ROI and employer-based and commercial value-based arrangements? And how will going upstream to children have lasting impacts on the overall cost of care and the related health costs for society since unhealthy kids invariably turn into unhealthy adults? I'm so glad that you asked that question because there are absolute societal benefits to investing in children. And like you said, healthy kids are more likely to lead to healthy adults. It's a common ground and a message we use when we're working with adult ACOs and CINs that kids transition, you want the patients as they transition to your adult model to be healthy, to be well-managed, to have had that experience, to have the preventive care that they need and deserve. So we do a lot of focus on prevention and Cheryl can, can talk more about that. But for us, we see it as a real population health imperative to focus on our kids. And for children's hospitals, many have a mission to help the community. Our hospital certainly does. This is one way that we look to uh, improve public health and population health for the whole region that we serve. And we can talk a little bit more about the tangible, actionable ways that we do that through value-based care. But value-based care, the construct really helps us do that and puts some financial resources and imperative from health plans be behind us to help us do that. Because we don't get the opportunity to talk about this as much as I would like, but I told a practicing pediatrician and I talk with colleagues and I work in an adult system that my kids who are overweight with elevated BMIs, you know, they turn into the adult with diabetes, COPD, congestive heart failure, and it really pays off to invest in kids. There's tons of primary prevention programs that are evidence-based that have been proven to make a difference, not only today for the child, but tomorrow when they're an adolescent, an adult, there are many programs that exist that have shown that if you have healthy kids, you are have healthier adults, they have less depression, they have less anxiety. And so I think, you know, it just makes sense if you're in this for the long game to improve the health of your community, your society, and your adult patients and employees to invest in kids and create healthy kids that turn into healthy adults. I really believe that's the foundation of us improving healthcare in our really across our country together. Um, specifically, I think if we really target behavioral health, we can see really early wins in creating kids who are healthier in their approach to challenges. You know, we all have adversity in our life, but how we handle that adversity really depends on protective factors that we can provide kids and teach them coping mechanisms in their young lives that they can translate into their adult lives. The other thing I think that is important to think about, like if I'm thinking about talking to employers, is that 
If you're a parent with an unhealthy child at home, whether that be from a medical or a behavioral health standpoint, you miss work. You miss work to take care of your kids or you're absent while you're at work. So you're there, but you're not mentally there. You're there physically, but you're not being a productive employee. So I think actually it makes sense from you know, from my standpoint, it's the right thing to do for kids. But from if I use the lens of an employer, it's the right thing to do to have healthy, productive employees. Um, so I think there's a way to talk to all audiences about this to show that it really does pay off to focus on primary prevention, which we're really, really focused on and good at in pediatrics. And that translates into healthy adults. I'll just add on to that a little bit, Cheryl, on the prevention side. We focus a lot on preventable disease through vaccination, right? And so one of the things that we do, and these value-based arrangements help us with this because we have the data to help our practices to produce lists of kids who are due for vaccine or they're due for their well-child visit. So all of this really works in tandem together. And what we've noticed is that the added data that we're able to ingest from value-based arrangements just helps us move the ball further down the court faster on this. And what our practices appreciate from a CIN approach is that, you know, they, they have the data that they know from when the child comes into the office, right? But they don't know what happens when they go anywhere else. They've gone to the ED, they've uh, maybe been to an urgent care. They don't have that information. So for us to be able to bring that to them and create actionable reports that focus on prevention. They've commented that that's a huge value for them. And we're, we're starting to see some rewards from that. Cheryl and Ginger, I'd love to talk to you more about this CIN approach. I've just been so impressed with the work that Seattle Children's Care Network has done to build clinical integration in your pediatric value-based network. And SCCN has actually received URAC accreditation for clinical integration by creating a structure where independent primary care pediatricians and specialty pediatricians can come together to focus on innovation, care coordination, quality, and patient family experience. So in your pursuit of clinical integration, can you provide some insights for how you were able to make investments in technology and infrastructure that were really required to deliver that level of patient-centered evidence-based care? And how has your pediatric CIN been able to overcome some of the barriers to clinical integration where pediatric quality cost and utilization performance improvement initiatives are often very different than that of adult care organizations? It's true, they are, and I came from an adult ACO, and it, it is much different on the children's side. And Cheryl and I were just talking about this yesterday that, you know, on the adult side, you usually go after big chronic diseases, CHF and COPD and diabetes, and we don't have those in pediatrics as much. We focus on, you know, on pharmacy, we look at going to generic for acne medicine or ADHD meds. It's a, it's a very different ballgame, and prevention is much more of the focus. One thing that we did early on, and you know, Seattle Children's was very generous in supporting the network and developing the infrastructure to be able to do this work. And data is key. We like to say, you know, we have more data than anyone else, and it's really true because we have EMR feeds from our practices and our hospitals. So all of our participants in our CIN, we get nightly feeds from them. We also have claims data from payers, and that's pharmacy and medical. 
And we're also ingesting ADT feeds for inpatient and ED visits with real-time notification. So putting all of that together does cost money and it does take an infrastructure and our hospital is, like I said, has been generous in supporting building the foundation for that, but it really feeds into the vision of improving population health in your region. And that's, it's just necessary to have the information and we're, we're moving to be such a data-based society and, you know, when Cheryl and I started our joint operating committees with practices, it was really the way that we started and we, we started the conversations with them was, look at your data. Here's data that you care about. Here's data that compares you to your peers. As a pediatric network, you know, finding pediatric benchmarks is sometimes hard. And that's one thing that they've appreciated is, hmm, I see my quality measure score for this measure is, you know, X percent. My colleague down the road or in another county is Y percent. I wonder why they're, why they're doing a better job. Through data, we've been able to help do a lot of quality improvement work on that. And that, that's been supported by our hospital. And I think it, it is their recognition that they're a leader in child health in the region. I think that, I mean, definitely a key to our success is understanding how important data is, but how important that our colleagues trust the data. So that, you know, that's a big one. And I used the word trust before and I'll use it again, but it is so key to us working together. The health plans have been providing data to all practices for years and years and years. But most of us just put that in our circular file because we don't trust it. You know, we looked at it and we're like, half those kids on that list don't belong to me. And there's a 70-year-old on my list. I'm a pediatrician. So we very quickly learned, we just decided not to trust that data and we threw it all away, honestly. But, you know, we were able to show to the practices who helped us validate the data and took a lot of time and energy to do this with us together that they learned to trust the data because we included them in the process to validating the data, that now we are able to have that, hey, uh, use really evidence-based quality improvement methods to look at data together to decide where do we need to improve and then talk collaboratively across the practices to Ginger's point when one practice is doing really, really well and another practice is struggling saying, hey, what are you doing at your practice that I can do at mine? The CIN has really given the practices the vehicle to be able to do that. And we support that with a really robust data and analytics team that actually is the biggest team in our network is really data analytics. That's how much value we put um, and the importance of that to us doing this work together. And it really has paid off. And I think if you looked at our website, you probably saw that we had a great success over the past year with a, one of our commercial value-based contracts. And a huge component of that was quality. All of our value-based contracts have a quality component. Most are quality gated, and we do not have the opportunity to earn any shared savings if we don't meet our quality benchmarks. And so it really was key to focus on quality. And we really, in a, a few short years, have seen some really nice success in that space. I think the other point with that is when we work with health plans, initially health plans really wanted to be the ones, they were sending data and reports out to practices directly to Cheryl's point. Over time, we've been able to show them, you know, we have an operational machine with the practices now where we can combine your data with other data that we have and streamline it into practices so that it's part of their normal process. It's what they're looking at. They're going to our reports now to pull down their lists of quality gaps and children who are due for visits, for example. 
when that's just coming in from the side from one health plan, it's harder for practices to focus on that. It's not in the workflow that they have standardized. But some of what we've been able to do over the past few years is to help standardize that workflow with practices and combine the data for our value-based arrangements into actionable lists that practices can work. I appreciate you bringing up the quality comments, and I want to dive into that a little bit deeper because it's quite a big difference between adult care systems and kid care systems. And and many adult health problems are age and lifestyle related, like things like diabetes, hypertension, and substance abuse. But children, on the other hand, are generally healthy, except when they're afflicted by acute conditions or congenital diseases or complex conditions like cancer. And in pediatric value-based care, this becomes a challenge to manage the complex, rare, expensive conditions, but you don't have the same level of standardized evidence that exists for many common adult diseases. And there are hundreds of outcome measures for adults, but few standard measures for children. So given the immense challenge related to this, how is your CIN working to improve quality of care by developing consistent metrics and standardizing that care? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, we have a quality committee with representation from all of our practices. So we have one physician from every practice on our quality committee. And I always like to call us the fun committee because uh, I have better attendance at my committee than anyone else. And it really is because pediatricians are so grounded in quality. And so we, as a quality committee early on, looked at this and, you know, we were excited thinking about having the opportunity to define what quality meant to us. Um, because you allude, to, you know, on the adult side, it was really done unto our adult providers because there are so many metrics. We had um, the opportunity to create a lot of our measures and metrics in some respects. These dictate what that looked like on the pediatric side because of this difference. And we really capitalized on that. You know, we kind of looked at this from a chronic disease, acute disease, preventive. And then you talked a little bit about this unique group that we serve, these medically complex kids. And then more recently, we have thought more and more about behavioral health and behavioral health measures. So we picked measures in each of these buckets. And, you know, no big surprise, we looked at well-child rates, immunization rates. We look at antibiotic use. Acute respiratory infections are very uh, common for us in pediatrics. For our medically complex kids, really looking at are they getting their preventative visits on time, which we feel is a key component to helping to coordinate care for their very medically complex kids. And then in the behavioral health space, there are a couple conditions that are fairly common for us, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder being one. And then screening is really important for us. Well-child developmental screening, and then later on behavioral mental health screening. And so we really have looked at what is available then standard in those different buckets. And there are some, and you well know, and I'm sure our listeners know, HEDIS is kind of king or key with the payers. Um, It's the standards they're held to, so they hold us to those standards. So then we tried to take what we felt was important and meaningful us and map that to HEDIS, then what HEDIS measures or metrics are available that would speak to us and that we could match up to that. 
and actually did some collaboration with colleagues across the country through the Children's Hospital Association together, also taking that kind of same approach. And we really came up with a core set of 12 to 14 measures metrics now that we standard are comfortable uh, using in value-based contracts. And then we have a few measures and metrics that aren't, they aren't HEDIS. They, we don't use them in measures that as measures and contracts, but they're important to us as a network. So we can track those across full population developmental screening being one of those. And so again, we really started with this, what's important to our practices, what's important to the patients and families that they're taking care of, where, what do we know other stakeholders are holding us to and where can we come to some middle ground then and matching those up or mirroring those. And that's worked really well. HEDIS at the beginning of time for our practices was not well received because of some of the rigidity of the requirements around it, but we really have come to, in some ways, embrace it and really use those as opportunities, as Ginger mentioned, to have opportunity to benchmark ourselves both regionally and nationally across peers has really become quite beneficial and very meaningful for our practices. You know, Cheryl, I'd add one other thing that we've started to look at, and there can be an assumption that, well, there's not a lot of opportunity in PEDS, but I would argue that we've started to look at utilization rates for some specialty areas and things like therapies. And this is not just us. This is when we get together with our other CIN colleagues in pediatrics through the Children's Hospital Association. And we get, we share ideas. And we took this idea from a group in Texas that started to look at therapy use rates. And it's really interesting. We looked at this with our claims data and for different regions and different groups. And what does the physical therapy use rate look like for similar diagnoses or similar age ranges of kids? There's a lot of variation. So, you know, when kids end up sick enough to be in the hospital, yeah, they, they're probably going to be expensive. They need to be there. There might not be a lot of site of service opportunity for things like infusions as there is on the adult side, for example. Pediatrics is different. They're, they're very ill and fragile, but the places to look are just different. And I think that this is a new area. Health plans and executives aren't as used to diving into that on the PED side, but it doesn't mean there's not opportunity for improvement there. So we're starting to just scratch the surface. Well, in recognizing the opportunities there for improvement, I'm really interested in learning more about how you're leveraging technology to really advance your operational playbook and pediatric value-based care. In my research of your organization, I've been really impressed with how SCCN has organized and aligned the work of the CIN across the enterprise with an operations hub that consists of care management and coordination, quality, clinical transformation, data and analytics, and technology. And I'd love to learn more about how you're leveraging technology for such things as quality measures, care gaps, risk coding, communicating with practices, how you're generating on-demand self-serve reports for physicians to really bring about that level of engagement and communication you spoke to earlier. And then I guess as a follow-up to that, I, I just wanted to see if there was any pivot in your technology approach with COVID-19. Have you gone into maybe the telehealth arena and looked at virtual visits? How are you adapting your technology infrastructure to respond to the, the current needs with the pandemic? As far as sharing data with our practices, one of the things we knew that we needed early on was a secure way to do that. 
one aspect of being a CIN and FTC regulations are very strict about what you can share and can't share and what's private. And so we were very cognizant of all of that. We put up a secure intranet a couple of years ago, and it really serves, you mentioned the hub, and we actually call this the hub too. So we mirrored our operational language of the way we run our shop with, we call it the hub, and it's the place, it's all things SCCN for our practices. And like I said, it's secure, it's tied down tight, but that's where they go to find all the resources. We try to post everything there. We have a special COVID clinical page that, that I'll let Cheryl talk more about, but we recognize that having a meeting with people and sharing some information. And then three weeks later, they're like, where is that thing that it was great, but I don't know where it is. So that was one way is just having a secure place to post all of that. We also have, as Cheryl mentioned earlier, a robust data team. They have an EDW and they create a lot of reports for us. And we're using Microsoft Power BI for that. And it's available 24 seven. So our practices are able to log on and this is where they get those actionable patient level reports that ties their EMR data to, well, what is the health plan telling us? You know, did they have a visit somewhere else that I didn't know about? Or did they go to the drugstore and get their vaccine and I didn't know about it? Or um, So they're able to pull those patient specific reports down and it marries that claims data with, well, when did they come in and see us last? When are they due for their next visit? That type of information. You know, since I'm still a practicing pediatrician, from my perspective, you know, we don't think about our patients of these are my Primera patients, these are my Regions patients, which are, you know, some of our commercial payers here. We think about our patient population. And so we really approach this from a full population, full panel approach so that we have data that we provide to our practices on their full panels. We can slice and dice it by all of our contracts. And absolutely, there are times when we are focused on our efforts and quality in particular with one of our payers where we see there's an opportunity to be successful. But I think that's really served us well to, to recognize that our practices are interested in serving their full panel of patients. And that really has given us a leg up and advantage, I think, in, in being successful together. Specifically around COVID, yes, we did. None of our practices were providing telemedicine visits pre-COVID. 100% of our practices are providing telemedicine visits post-COVID. And that happened over the course of weeks for our practices. We were fortunate, actually, in our state, our healthcare authority provided uh, licenses to one of the telemedicine vendors so that that really helped with costs and spinning that up, but we provided the operational support for our practices, didn't know how to bill for those services. Um, they didn't know what would be appropriate for a telemedicine visit. We talked through a lot of the technology hiccups of what kind of a laptop with what kind of AV equipment did you need so that you had good quality visits? What about confidentiality? How can my teen talk to me confidentially when they're home with their whole family? You know, telehealth early, I think, was received very, very well. Patients and families were very, very nervous about coming into our practices and were quite hesitant to come see us, but they still had important things that they needed to talk to us about and to get advice about and to be seen. And so from a patient and parent perspective, it was very well received early. It really allowed us to stay connected to our patients and families and to provide them service and reassure them. And, you know, it allowed us to keep them safe as well. We were able to, for a kid with a fever or respiratory symptoms, 
we could do a telemedicine visit first. In the past, we would have brought that kid into clinic and potentially exposed others. Now we can do a telemedicine visit first, decide if they need to be seen or not. And a huge majority of those kids were okay to stay at home. And we were able to keep them at home and decrease the potential for them exposing other kids and serve the patients and families' needs. So that was very well received early on. We were at the height probably doing 70 to 80% of our visits is telemedicine. That decreased pretty rapidly. We're down now to between 20 and 30% of our visits are telemedicine, I would say, across the network. Patients and families still really like that service for when they feel it's appropriate, when we feel it's appropriate. Um, it's really very nice to do behavioral health follow-up via telemedicine, especially for teens who are very savvy in the technology space and are used to communicating with peers this way. That generally has worked really well. It, again, has really helped to improve infection control methods to be able to offer telemedicine to patients and families with infectious disease that would have brought, otherwise been brought into the clinic and been a risk for us. So generally, I think it's well received though, when patients felt comfortable and they could come back for care in person, many wanted to. We even provided for a brief week period of time, well visits virtually, and that was not as well received, both by the practices and the patients and families. There is value in the relationship we have in person there are things that we can do in person that we just can't do via telemedicine. And so definitely our families, when they could and felt comfortable, wanted to come back and see us. What we hear from them is they still want a lot of their care in person, but there now is this new capacity that we created to do virtual care, which I believe is not going away. I can't tell you enough how impressed I am with your pediatric value-based care model. And I'm elated to learn about your results. For example, just a few months ago, you learned that one of your pediatric total cost of care arrangements yielded 2 million in savings on a 2019 performance, which as I understand is an outstanding result given that the spend in pediatrics is so much less than a Medicare aged population. Can you walk our listeners through your results over the last few years in terms of, of both utilization and cost savings? Have you been able to lower pediatric ED utilization, improve asthma management, increase adolescent well visit completion rates, et cetera. What has been your track record in lowering costs in your payer contracts over the last seven years? Well, we could talk about this for a while. There is not a silver bullet like there is a similar in the adult space. There's not a silver bullet. Oh, we did this one thing and then we saw amazing results. There's just, you chip away at it over time with a lot of different interventions. We were thrilled to have that result on our shared savings contract for one uh, commercial program in 2019. And really it had to do with quality improvement first. And as Cheryl said earlier, all of our contracts have like any value-based arrangement, right? They have quality requirements. Well, this is a quality gated requirement. If we didn't meet those quality measures on the primary care side, we wouldn't have received a dollar of those shared savings. So that's the first story that we really like to tell. And we've done work on, as you said, asthma transitions from ED and inpatient well visits and teen up gap lists for the practices uh, to use using actionable data that's up to date. One of the things that we haven't talked much about yet, but we have a care management team that is early on did training with the practices about just how you do point of care care management. You know, all of them were doing that to some extent, 
but they didn't have the information necessarily about the children who had been to the ED the day before. If an ED happened to send them a post-visit report, they would have it, you know, on a, the old-time fax machine. But they didn't have a one-stop shop for, here's where all the kids and panel to your patients went to the ED over the past day, seven days, three months, one year. And so now they can pull those up. And, it, and our care management director did a lot of training with the practices about how do you do transitions follow-up? What should be part of your transitions call? What should you be looking for? How do you decide who needs to come in for a follow-up visit and in what time frame? So all that training happened and they're reliably using those reports now. So that's part of it. We're a best-in-class on ED utilization for our network, which is great. And I think part of it is because primary care is doing such a good job connecting with those patients and families. Yeah, you know, so well, all yeah, all of the physicians and providers in our network are board certified, and for us to keep maintain our boards, we have to do uh, structured quality improvements projects, typically at least two over a five year period, and so we really capitalized on that requirement to look at our data and say, okay, where can we improve together? And then structured, they're called maintenance of certification, part four projects for our board certification. You know, we started at bread and butter pediatrics, improving well care and immunization rates. And at first I thought, well, gosh, is there really much opportunity here? We really were performing over the 75th percentile in the HEDIS measures in that space, but it, it was what was near and dear to my colleague's heart. So we started there and did a structured maintenance of certification quality improvement project. And over the course of a year working together and using data to inform our project, we improved 10 points over what we were baseline. And we continue, we just operationalized that work together around immunizations and well care. And so they continue to get those standard reports, which Ginger has explained pretty well. And so the next year we said, okay, what's next for us? And we really looked where we had opportunity was improving asthma. We were not meeting the 75th percentile. And for a couple of our practices, we were more like at the 25th percentile. And so it was kind of a no brainer that that's where we needed to go next. And we created a very robust asthma maintenance of certification quality improvement project and really had actually several, uh, they were some pretty big audacious goals, but really we were quite interested in reducing exacerbations in our asthma population that would lead to either emergency department or an inpatient stay. And so we really focused on um, making sure that we were following the national evidence-based guidelines for asthma care for kids. Um, that all of our kids who had persistent asthma were on a maintenance medication, that they were actually coming in for the standard number of follow-up visits based on their severity over the course of the year, which is anywhere from one to four, depending on your severity, and track that at the patient provider and network level. Um, and provided them all that data, we really went after more aggressively treating exacerbations in the primary care setting to, in an attempt to avoid patients having to end up in the ED and inpatient setting, and really did a lot of escalation planning with patients and families to help them to be able to manage their asthma better at home. And we've seen some really nice success. We definitely have increased the rate of chronic asthma medication rates across our patients who participated in that project 
with the practices, we increased the treatment of exacerbations in the outpatient setting, which was one of our goals, which may sound a little counterintuitive, but that worked really well for us. And we increased our influenza vaccine rate for our asthma population, which as we know is a big trigger uh, for kids to have an asthma exacerbation, often leading to ED inpatient stay. So we really, again, using science, um, a data-driven approach around quality improvement have had a tremendous success. And that definitely contributed to our success with the commercial-based contract that you guys talked about at the beginning of this question. So we really continue to do this. It is my goal to always have at least one maintenance of certification quality improvement project that we're doing together with the practices and then operationalize that um, so that we continue on a quarterly basis to track our asthma data together and fold that into operations. And we're very focused, probably no big surprise today on behavioral health and have a very large initiative around integrated behavioral health. Well, it, it just absolutely seems like you've had outstanding results on your commercial-based contracts. And I wanted to understand more how you're expanding your value-based care pediatric contract portfolio. I mean, there's a lot of different pathways here I mean, payer contracting. And you know, some organizations, for example, they're placing big bets on full capitation for Medicaid populations. And others are looking to develop legal entities between community physicians and hospitals to improve quality and share data. Another area of opportunity is to really focus on attracting kids with special needs by positioning yourself as a population health manager for kids in foster care or disabled kids. So I wanted to ask you both on what types of innovative arrangements have you pursued with your CIN beyond the commercial payer contracts that you've had over the last few years? For example, I understand you might have launched a Medicaid MCO last year. I'd love to learn more about that. And then anything else you may be considering. I happened to read an article a few days ago about even opportunities for pediatric CINs maybe to contract directly with school districts that are engaged in capitated special education to achieve better patient outcomes and lower costs for pediatrics. So I think there's so many opportunities with Medicaid, special needs, all of that. So if you could speak a little bit about what you're doing to expand your value-based care contracting strategy, I think our listeners would love to learn more and hear about that. Yeah, well, we're excited that last year we were able to sign a couple of arrangements with Medicaid MCOs in our market, the two largest. And that was a gap for us. We recognized that was a gap. And so we were excited to work on that. Those right now are more on the pay for performance range, but it aligns well in pediatrics for improving what's important on, the, on prevention. And we think that the, the healthcare authority in our state is talking a lot about moving toward risk and capitation. We're not quite there yet, but we do see that uh, they're talking a lot about that. We're trying to prepare ourselves for that. And that's, that's part of the infrastructure bill that we've been talking about and the ability to ingest data to help teach our practices how to do population health management, both at the point of care, but also what do we do centrally Complex care management is something that we do do centrally, and we have a unique arrangement with a health plan where they identify pediatric patients with administrative or clinical complexity, and they send us those lists every month and say, hey, can you help us with these? Can you go after these with your care management shop? And so we've been doing that, and we have coming up on 170 children in that complex care management program right now. 
where our camp care managers are working with those families and developing care plans in concert with primary care or specialty physicians. So that's a program we're excited about, and we've really seen great interest from families in that. It's interesting because initially it launched before the COVID outbreak, and we had good interest. The beginning of COVID, you know, people were so overwhelmed that they were a little more hesitant to sign up for another program or, or this program. Uh, but as COVID kind of waged on and it really started wearing on families, we saw them interested in taking part in a focused care management for their complex children. So we've had actually better success and engagement rates with that program than we anticipated. And it's an area that we want to grow, certainly. Ginger, Dr. Morelli, I was reading an article just from this past week in modern healthcare that says a child's mental health is more important than their grades in school. And it's alarming to see how children's mental health care needs have skyrocketed during the pandemic. Between March and April of 2020, total mental health claims for children ages 13 to 18 doubled compared to 2019. And between April and October 2020, mental health related visits within pediatric emergency departments rose by approximately 24% among children ages five to 11 and 31% for kids ages 12 to 17 compared to the same months during 2019. And I'd read recently as well that Seattle Children's Care Network and Seattle Children's Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine launched an innovative pediatric integrated behavioral health initiative in collaboration with the University of Washington Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Sciences to promote behavioral health integration in SCCN's community-based pediatric practices. How's that going so far and how are you able to improve access to behavioral health services for kids in need? Yeah, so our state has a very large Medicaid waiver and the money is distributed by regions. We've been partnering with the Accountable Community of Health serving our largest region. We did a targeted piloted program around social determinants of health, um, specifically trying to impact families who've been disproportionately affected by COVID that belong to our practices and had some great success and a kind of, again, a decentralized, centralized approach to screening for social determinants of health, um, meeting concrete needs at the practice when we could, and then referring to a central system that with us to link families with services in the community that the practices didn't have the time expertise or, or really bandwidth or knowledge to be able to do. And we had great success there in partnering with the Accountable Community of Health in our region to be able to touch those families. And we we have learned a lot about what it takes um, to run that type of program and are building that into bigger models now to move forward with um, discussions with our MCOs. So I'm really excited about that space. And then integrated behavioral mental health actually has been Uh, Several years ago, when we did a strategic planning with our board, and we really talked with all of our members about where do you need help? Where do you think we should be focusing? Behavioral health always rose to the top of the list. And so we really started looking at, well, what can we do around behavioral health? Who can we partner with? Who are the experts in this space? And we're very fortunate that we live in a state that has some of the experts in this space. So we really looked to our academic partners at the University of Washington on what they've been doing around integrated behavioral mental health through their AIMS Center. 
And we were fortunate enough to put together funding from three really uh, unique groups. So philanthropic dollars, commercial payer dollars, and Medicaid dollars, all to launch an integrated behavioral mental health initiative founded in the model that the University of Washington Ames Center has created and embedding behavioral mental health providers into pediatric practices with pediatric psychiatric oversight and really working to improve then uh, behavioral mental health outcomes for our patients and families through that model. We launched a learning collaborative with our practices this past, with the first cohort of six practices in November of this past year, and are partnering with colleagues through our hospital in behavioral health and psychiatry to really help support our practices as they're implementing this very new innovative model and already are seeing improvement in our screening rates for behavioral mental health conditions, uh, which is really exciting in such a short period of time that we're already seeing improvement in that space. It's something we really are working to expand and grow as we move forward. We did some really interesting analysis on our patient population, looking at kids with chronic conditions. Uh, We don't have as many impedes, but we looked at asthma and a couple other chronic conditions for kids with and without behavioral health comorbid diagnoses. And probably not a big surprise, but I think data really emphasized this, that our kids with asthma and a behavioral health condition, their spend is three times that of a kid without a behavioral health condition. So I think we're really onto something here in that if we target improvements around improving behavioral mental health for our patients and families, that we really will see improvement, both in their quality of care, their quality of life, as well as cost and utilization. Well, I'm duly impressed with your behavioral health integration program. I mean, just outstanding. I'm so excited to learn about that. And behavioral health has been such a crisis in our country, and it's been exacerbated by uh, COVID-19. And I wanted to ask you about something else I was reading that had an impact uh, due to the pandemic, and that's uh, food insecurity. I was reading an article recently, and it said the number of children in the U.S. experiencing food insecurity is upwards of 14 million which is about six times as many children with food insecurity than there was in 2018, and about three times as many as the peak of the Great Recession in 2008. So with with your work and managing underserved, vulnerable populations, how are you addressing social determinants like food insecurity or housing or a multitude of other things that families are dealing with and, and children are adversely impacted by? I would say we are just scratching the surface. Um, a lot, you know, a lot. First, we started with education, and we're doing some of this for through our integrated behavioral mental health collaborative of just doing exactly what you just shared. You know, sharing data with the practices of why this matters, why why is this important for us, um, and that quickly got to the well, what should we do about it? And starting small, um, so many of our practices started with, well, I'm just going to ask a food insecurity question as an additional vital sign. Um, So I'm just going to ask two questions about food insecurity and then put together uh, resources that I know are in my community that I can refer you to to help address those needs. So starting really small, informed by the really local community where our practices are, and then What the next step for us is was looking at a broader approach to social determinants of health screening, which is what we did with this pilot project I mentioned with our Medicaid waiver dollars. 
And now we're going to build on that to take that, to scale that, to really look at, well, then how do you do that across your whole practice, across your whole patient population? And I believe really continue to follow a decentralized, centralized approach to this. Most kids get care in their community locally. So where wherever we can, empowering our practices to be able to link to services locally, but when that they don't exist or where they don't have the expertise to be able to do that, then referring to us to be able to help has been a really nice approach for us in general and how we approach problems together, but for this one in particular. And we have a lot more work to do in this space. And I believe probably for our next three-year strategic plan, this is going to rise up one of the top of our list to target for the coming three years. Yeah, it's a good question. Of, and we have this conversation recently, uh, much more since COVID, of how can we weave social determinants of health incentives into our value-based arrangements? They're not specifically called out now. They could be, probably should be. And I don't know if you all are aware of any arrangements around the country that have social determinants of health built in with uh, specific incentives or measures or, or payment mechanisms, but it's an area that we struggle with. I think about the struggle also that we have as a country in health policy, and I know uh, there's a lot of thinking at the political level about addressing social determinants of health, but I'm particularly concerned about kids being left behind. It, It just invariably seems like sometimes they're an afterthought in policy planning, and it's so important to keep children front and center in health policy conversations and develop solutions specifically to meet their needs. I mean, when it comes to clinical care, children are not little adults. So we have to think about population health interventions, policies, financial arrangements, and approach to families that really reflect that fact, which includes addressing social determinants and the, its impact on children. You know, I, I just happened to be reading an article recently. It was talking about how children in those formative years, second and third grade, when they're learning how to read and going on into online learning because of the pandemic and how it's going to have a devastating impact on their their future in education. And 10 years from now, we may have high school dropout rates that are three to four times higher than they are now because of you know what we're dealing with in the pandemic. So I, I, I wanted to ask you uh, just generally, you know, at your, you're both leaders in pediatric value-based care, and I know you're doing a lot to raise awareness of the differences between adult and children's population health needs. Can you speak to maybe some of the work that you might be doing just to, you know, influence policy, you know, if it's in new payment models or just, you know, advocating for children? I, I'd love to learn more about that. And, and obviously we're, we're honored to have our platform for you to raise awareness on these important issues as well. Thank you. I mean, your comments warm my heart because I do believe, you know, kids are are our future and they are left out. And so thank you for giving us the vehicle to address this a little bit. A couple of things, you know, I, I recognized early that advocacy in this space was important. And I, as part of my job, I elected to spend some of my time joining work groups with our our state uh, Medicaid agency, our state healthcare authority. I'm actually on our local, the American chapter of pediatrics, local state chapter is very, very involved in advocacy efforts with our legislation. So I'm actually on the board for that as well, to really be able to represent our network, our patients, our families in these spaces to advocate for what we believe needs to happen from a funding standpoint, as well as from a care transformation standpoint. 
you know, we've mentioned several times that our state is really signaling that they're moving quite quickly down to probably full capitation in the primary care space. And we really, I have been fortunate to be able to force us onto that table to be able to influence that. And with the help of our local state chapter of the AAP, we actually put together a pediatric value-based payment plan that we have proposed to our state Medicaid agency to do exactly what um, we were just talking about, focus on kids, recognize that it's different for us, that a, a huge component for us is focusing on not the medical care, but on, in the social determinants of health space. Um, how we can get compensated for coordinating that type of care, what's an appropriate payment rate. So we're, I personally have been doing quite a bit of work on behalf of our network in that space. And having the Seattle Children's name behind me really helps. And so that is a nice benefit of being part of the network. But the, uh, you know, a couple other things we're doing, our board now has recognized how important advocacy is in this space, but we definitely are novices. And so we, Ginger and I are putting together with the help of some experts in our state advocacy education program for our board, which we're going to split over a couple board sessions. One, to teach them who are the important players in our state, who do we need to be influencing, and then how do you influence them? Um, and then we are going to have actually concrete, actionable goals that come out of that um, so that we really can use our board, which is you know, a really robust, super intelligent, dedicated group of primarily pediatricians to help to influence this for the kids in our state. And then the last thing I've been partnering with our chair of pediatric psychiatry, Dr. Larry Wisso, is very interested in improving the behavioral mental health of kids in our state. And he and I have applied for a large grant through SAMHSA to continue some of this work together. So kind of a, a multi-pronged approach that I hope will get us closer to my vision of where we need to go to improve care for kids. I'd like to wrap up the conversation today by sharing a quote that I found from Nelson Mandela, former president of South Africa. He says, there's no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. And as I've been listening to you and having this conversation with you today, I've, my mind has gone back to an educator that I had the privilege of being taught by uh, Joe Horton, who was the CEO of Primary Children's Hospital, uh, close to where I live in Utah. And he taught a lot about principled leadership. And so as I think about children's care and the work that you've been doing so well and the message that you're sharing, I'm just thinking about this, the idea of principled leadership. And I want to invite you to comment, uh, what are the principles that are driving you and what principles would you emphasize to other leaders in the value space? I'd add that as we talk with health plans, MCOs, adult CINs or funders or employer groups, we often think about, you know, if we helped all of our kids live the healthiest lives possible, what would the long-term value impacts be? There's such potential here that is just untapped. And, you know, we, we keep saying we're just scratching the surface. I really feel like that's what we, we're doing right now is scratching the surface. There's so much potential. I think it's largely unrecognized. And you, you alluded to it, Eric, as the society, as the American healthcare system. And where do all the dollars go? You know, what if we, what if we put more to kids' health? What would that look like in 20 years as those kids are adults and move into adulthood? And could we really impact the long-term spend? I think we can. But that's the kind of messaging that we use. And we actually need to get that message out more. 
Yeah, you know, in some ways, it's a very simple answer. I mean, providing better care for kids and families and creating healthier kids and families really is what drives me. And I believe the network is a vehicle for us to be able to do that. And I believe that that it takes partnership and collaboration across administrative and clinical sectors for us to be able to do that effectively. And I think that the fact that Ginger and I have a dyad leadership structure for our network where we recognize how important that partnership is, is part of what's made made us successful for the network. But I mean, it, it really is that we want to have, you know, we want to create healthier kids and families. And I truly believe that creates a healthier society. And that not only does that help us have better quality of life, but it makes sense from a cost and utilization standpoint. If we create healthier patients, kids, families, we will decrease the cost in utilization. I, I have no doubt in my mind that that is true. Yeah, and I, I guess I, I had to think about that one for a little bit. It's a really good question. And for value-based care, I would say, you know, we all want the same things at the end of the day. We all want a healthier society. We all want healthy seniors, healthy adults, healthy children with the best possible outcomes at the most value. So how can we work together to align our incentives to get there? Sometimes the incentives don't seem like they're aligned correctly. And I'm sure both sides would say that, either the payer or the provider. But I think we can all improve and just look at what are our goals and then let's think about, okay, how should we align what we're doing together? What makes the most sense to get where we want to go? Because we probably agree on where we all want to go. Ginger, Cheryl, thank you so much. You both are truly winning the race to value and really excited to have you this week on our podcast. And how can our listeners find out more about the great work that you're doing there at Seattle Children's Care Network? Well, our website is seattleccn.org. And there's contact info there. And, you know, we'd be, we talk with folks all the time. We'd be happy to reach out on LinkedIn or find us on our website and talk with anybody about this. We're both passionate about this space.